Welcome to the Dad Strength Podcast, helping you earn the mug that says world's greatest dad. The Dad Strength Podcast is an Unlearning Network production. My name is Jeff Gervitz. I am your host. I am a dad, and I am currently keeping a phone scammer on hold. I told him that I had to go get my wallet. Let's see how long he waits. I think that if my family had a motto, my dad's side anyway, it would be, we will never speak again. I don't know what the banner would look like, but I think maybe those words would be on a scroll and then a rider on horseback would be tossing the whole thing behind his back without looking. When I think back to my childhood, I am surprised by the sheer number of people that my dad simply stopped speaking with. After some kind of slight or offense, looking back, I think it really bothered him when relationships didn't work out. This was protective. You reject someone before they can reject you. The idea was so implicit in my upbringing and maybe in me that I didn't even realize that I had taken it on and brought it with me into adulthood. So, you know, over time I have been, I think, able to shake that off and there is more vulnerability in this wave of relating to people. But, you know, I've also gotten a lot better at figuring out what kind of people to have relationships with in the first place. And it has been really good for me. And I'll give you an example. A friend of mine of almost 15 years recently opened up a Brazilian jiu-jitsu spot. And I have been delighted to be getting back into things. The old familiar soreness is draped over my body like a favorite sweatshirt. And my renewed enthusiasm also means that my son is now getting a play-by-play when we wrestle around. Sometimes that means a professional wrestling style commentary, and sometimes it's more technical. You know, I'm careful about not hammering him with detail. I don't want to suck the fun out of it, but so far he thinks I'm just giving him the cheat codes. I walked him through a simple escape two nights ago, and he actually asked me why I told him. He thought that I was being a fool. Uh, That is because he already feels pretty invincible. So, you know what? Before he discovers anything To the contrary, I want to make sure that he's got a framework for learning and moving through adversity. And that is probably my favorite part of the whole thing. Hey, are you experiencing extreme discomfort? Maybe significant physical duress? Great. Now think creatively and strategically. I'm careful when we mess around, partially because kids just don't evaluate risk very well. You can't just take a five-year-old at their word when it comes to something like drag racing or skydiving. It's not bravado. It's just completely, beautifully unjustified confidence, the kind that builds nations. But we keep it safe as parents, right? Choices are many, but constrained. They get to choose what shoes to wear, which coat. It's kind of an artificial freedom, but it gets boots on feet and out the door until the day they figure out your strategy. And I still remember when my son said, okay, dad, you decide, will we play video games or go buy a new toy? I was like, that's my move. Anyway, the point is kids are perceptive. They see and they freely articulate our flaws and inconsistencies. And they are also more than capable of calling us out when we say we're going to do a thing, but don't do it. And I think that responding to those moments, honestly, and showing accountability is a really big deal. And I'll tell you why. Sometimes, 100%, their reactions to things feel asymmetrical, disproportionate. That's kid stuff because there really is a first time for everything, including more complex feelings. So the first time a kid feels a sense of injustice, 
it doesn't matter what it's actually about. Is it a big deal who got more cereal in their bowl? It won't feel that way to us, especially if we've taken our eyes off of the prize and are just trying to hustle through the morning into the next thing. But I think we have to acknowledge their feelings and walk through them with them because if we aren't responding to something that feels like a major injustice to them, what are we telling them about their world or their thoughts about it or how they fit into everything? So I think that we all deserve a feeling of Fruit Loop justice. My N equals one experience is that if you are willing to talk it out with them, you can help them calibrate. So let the emotions be big, but then give them your take without telling them how to feel. And, you know, a lot of these things just kind of resolve themselves. We hope for the best anyway. And I bring this all up because the relationship that we have with our kids uh, especially during their first five years, has a lifelong impact on who they are. I don't think that things just stop at five, by the way, like a train that arrives at the end of the developmental line. It's just that their early experiences are impactful. Much of this can be described through the lens of attachment theory. Attachment theory, if you're not familiar with it, is a well-validated framework. It describes how we learn about relationships and how to be in them. Secure attachment, anxious attachment, avoidant attachment and disorganized attachment. We adapt to what we get. And what we got was a result probably of what our parents got and their parents before them. I have been trying to get my head around attachment theory. And I don't think that you need like a PhD level understanding of it. But if I were to create a care package for new parents, you'd get a quick primer in there wedged somewhere between Goodnight Moon and a package of AA batteries. There's also a different group of attachment styles recognized in adults. This is good to note. Uh, we can be secure, avoidant, anxious, or anxious and avoidant, double hit. It took me a while to find a podcast guest who could really clarify this stuff and shine a light on it. And I did find someone. And in fact, before I got to interview her, she interviewed me. I feel like we all made the cut for this one, but I'm really glad because she is really rooting for all the dads out there. Dr. Carol George is a professor of psychology. She has an incredible body of work, including the adult attachment style interview. She teaches courses in development and attachment. She co-directs a master's degree program in infant mental health, and she trains and consults on how researchers and clinicians use the attachment assessment. She's just the kind of voice that you need here. Like many of my heroes, there's a real gentleness to her. And then underneath, I think, an iron will uh, and a real sense of what is right and what is important. Before we jump into the interview, I want you to know that I'll be hosting a live event in Toronto on March 5th, 2023. It's going from noon till 2 p.m. It's a quick one. And it will be at Bang Personal Training in downtown Toronto. It's just going to be a small group of dads talking about dad stuff and health stuff. And I'm really looking forward to it. If you are interested in joining us, you can email me at Jeff, G-E-O-F-F, at dadstrength.com. I'll walk you through everything. Now for my interview with Carol George. Let's get into it. I'm a biologist, although I haven't done biology for many decades now. I also am a developmentalist, so my original interest was in, in children, of course, children and their parents. Uh, I, I came to that based on my own environment. My parents were educators. My mother was an educator of children, and I spent my life in, in, as a college professor. 
uh, following in my father's footsteps. And uh, I grew up in Southern California near a beach, and so I spent a lot of time at the ocean. I wanted originally to be a marine biologist. And that interest uh, cultivated a, a deep appreciation for the importance of our biology. Um, when I was in school and I was uh, an undergraduate, um, at one point I thought I might be a doctor, medical doctor, but I can tell you that I saw my first uh, corpse for dissection and I think I ran out of the hospital and said, uh oh, I can't do this. But I, I kept the biological, so I have a lot of biological background. Um, and developmental background. So when I was going to graduate school, I attended UC Berkeley and thought that I was going to be a developmentalist who did research. I, um, cl clinical work was not on my radar at that time. Uh, I really loved science. I wanted to be a researcher. And at UC Berkeley, when I arrived, there was um, exciting research being done um, on memory in infants. Uh, oh, wow, this is really something. Uh, but in my first year there, Dr. Mary Main arrived from uh, the university. Let's see, she was at Johns Hopkins. Her advisor had been Mary Ainsworth, and Ainsworth was, uh, had since gone to the University of Virginia. Uh, and attachment theory really spoke to me because it, it combined all of those things that scientifically I had invested in and really believed in that were important to quality of life because the foundation of attachment theory is human biology, primate biology, which has been uh, focused on primarily with uh, humans, of course, but it's primate biology and what it is we need to do to survive. And that's what every organism on this planet is asking at a biological level. How do, how do I survive? And um, fortunately, Dr. Main, Dr. Mary Main arrived when I was a, young person could be molded in, in that direction. And she was bringing attachment theory directly from Mary Ainsworth's lab. And that was it for me. I've been doing it ever since. That was in 1974. What grabbed you? You know, you say, you know, as soon as you kind of grasped the material, it was, that was it for you. But what, what was it? Attachment gave me something that we are all seeking in our vocations which is a way to understand ourselves and our families. I had questions about my family. My parents were raised during the Depression. Very, very hard time. Um, even harder than now, even though I think the COVID era, era is going to produce uh, generational effects the same, not the same way, identical to the Depression, but the COVID pandemic that we've had is going to have a major effect on multiple generations of individuals, depending upon how old they are. And that's what happened in the Depression. Uh, the Depression had different effects depending upon how old people were. And um, my mother was young and my father was a budding, like what we call a tween once upon a time. I don't think we use that word anymore. And I, I was, um, I've all, had always been struck growing up. Uh, is to why hardships were so hard to let go of when we were now living as a family in um, a household that had an income. My parents were educated. Uh, even my mother had a bachelor's degree, which was unusual for women of her time. And how was it that 
these um, challenges and traumas? Why did they linger? Why are they still here? Uh, and so attachment theory opened the door for me to understand and explore. Uh, when you're a scientist, you never have all the answers. In fact, the more answers you get, the more questions are generated. Um, so that was the personal draw for me. Um, originally, when I wanted to, when I wanted to be a biologist, I was really interested in evolution, but I think I didn't understand why. I just mm. was fascinated by you know those were the courses I took. And of course, children, I, I understood that because my mother was an elementary school teacher and I uh, was there a lot. And teaching. I've always been a teacher. Um, so what grabbed me about attachment theory was like, oh my goodness, I realized as I was going through graduate school that yes, infant memory is very, very important and it plays a part, of course, in the work that I do in attachment. But the fundamental questions about why we are who we are um, how we adapt to relate in relationships to in the past and to the relationships that we have now, how we survive, how we protect ourselves, um, why it appears that what we remember and someone else remember is not the same thing, even in the same family, how defenses work, uh, really started to provide an opening for me to explain questions that I think I had had for years and years and years and years. And how we protect ourselves stands out as, as a piece of this. And, and so is the biological part, you know, ba based, you know, on your, on your initial direction, is that, is that epigenetic? Is that uh, the result of a chronic stress response? Like what was the lens you were looking at things through? Well, you have to remember um, as a young person, and many of your um, listeners are probably young people as well, that in 1974, we didn't have all of this. In fact, epigenetics is something that has just come in in the last decade, mm -hmm. and it's exciting. Oh my gosh, I wish we had it. Um, we had a bit of genetics, um, it, more, more of what we have come to understand and do more research about in the field of attachment is emotion regulation and how hormones are related in like cortisol, for example, how stress reactions are uh, regulated by whether or not we feel comforted and protected by our attachment figures. And that's sort of the center of the research that went in from the 1970s. We just, Bowlby actually, John Bowlby, the father of attachment, actually wrote a bit about physiological ideas related to attachment. All this was really, really new. So most of the research has been over time about cortisol stress responses. Mm -hmm. And then with my colleague, Dr. Anna Buchheim, who now is at the University of Innsbruck, she had started to do um, about 20 years ago when MRIs had become accessible. Now they're really popular. People know what they are. Uh, you, you go to the doctor and sometimes you'll have an MRI. That was not the case even 20 years ago. She, she was starting to use MRIs to... Um, to look at the different attachment patterns, the groups, and to see what was happening in the brain. And some other people have followed as well now. And so we, we know that there are neurophysiological, biochemical, you know, hormonal reactions depending upon how, what our experiences are and how those experiences are framed in our mind. And so a lot of the work that I do in attachment aside from the, the work that Anna and I do together, is what we call mental representation. 
How do we hold a sense of who we are in our own mind? That is built beginning in infancy and that infant memory work that I did early on has participated in that. Um, it's, it, we build that throughout our childhoods um, when devastating events happen around us. And again, we don't know what's going to be happening now with COVID and all the deaths that we've had in COVID or what it's like for people who are in, in war situations. Uh, and all of these things come and threaten us, threaten our protection. So we build a sense based on our environment, but especially based on those people who are responsible for our protection of who we are in the world. So that by the time we're an adolescent, we're pretty, well, actually by the time we're five, we have a pretty good sense of that. But by the time we're adolescents, we have a really good sense of that because that's what we're supposed to be doing is developing an identity and a sense of who we are in the world and a sense of who we are in relation to others. Um, and so all of this is brought together and moves us through our adolescence and our adulthood. Uh, we make predictions about what's going to happen next. We consciously or unconsciously choose people to be in relationship with based on, the research is very clear, based on these deep biological, neurophysiological, biochemical substrates. Beyond that, if we have listeners or you yourself are really interested in like the mechanics of epigenetics, um, we haven't gone there. Um, we do have some genetic research uh, showing that there may be some individuals who, based on um, certain gene sites, that may be more sensitive to trauma, for example. Mm -hmm. But we also know in the 21st century that it's neither the environment nor our biology. It's always an interaction. I think that's where epigenetics will become very important. My guess is that epigenetics might be the next wave of researchers once that we get enough people trained um, out of biology and genetics and moving them back into um, questions about relationships and emotional development. You know, to, to kind of sum up what I'm hearing so far, we, we have these... Um, biological markers that we can look at, but what you're really doing is trying to form a picture functionally. Uh, we know this is how we uh, relate to um, our parents in early childhood or, or other relationships in our life, but um, I, I assume, and and um, is it mostly mom or, or is... No. No. Dads are so important. And when I was really excited to hear you're interested in dads and fathers, and hello to all of you fathers out there. Uh, dads are really, really important, and um, there, there's some differences there. And, and after I interrupted your summarizing, but at some point we might want to go into no. Let's let's dig in. Let's talk. Let's talk about why dads are important here. Well, for primates, dads are the protectors. Humans are unusual primates in that we, um, and it depends on where in history. Humans are unusual because we, we carry a history, a social history. Uh, and the, um, what we expect of the males, of the fathers, historically, and I'll go there in just a second, um, sometimes changes. 
So let's let's go to primates, mm-hmm. <laughs> where they don't have to deal with social media and uh, pressures and go out. You know, they go off to work in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, for example, if if we were observing gorillas, um, what we would notice is. Of course, different family arrangements for uh, primate species than for humans. But the male gorillas are in charge of protecting everybody else. So one observation that was made many, many years ago. See, um, let me stop for just a second. The beauty of attachment theory is that it came to fore in an era in the 20th century when people were observing non-humans and asking questions about how do they do it? How do they protect? How do they raise their young? How do they get their food? How do they choose a mate? And uh, a lot of that, you know, a name that you and your listeners probably uh, would recognize would be Jane Goodall, for example, Mm -hmm. who was in the forefront of that. And that, those questions about how do non-humans do this were in the forefront of the 1970s and 80s. Now, there's still groups of people who who study that, but it's not really at the center. But attachment theory was coming. And John Bowlby said, who was a psychoanalyst, said, this does what the psychoanalysts are saying doesn't make sense. It can't all just be in the children's minds. It's not a fantasy world. So being a distant cousin of John of uh, Charles Darwin, he went off into biology and found what we call the ethologists, which is what uh, uh, Jane Goodall is. Okay, now back to the gorillas. So if we were observing gorillas, what we would see is that if there was a threat to the community or a threat to that group of individuals, the male gorilla, the father gorilla would scare the infant so the infant would go running to the mother. And the mother would be in charge of holding the infant, comforting the infant, which is often what we think of in our image of attachment. And the male gorillas were out there ready to to, uh, defend the perimeter. And I think if you stop and think about humans, there's a lot of that still, where the, the men are socialized to be the protectors and women are socialized to be the comforters. So we do inherit that in our primary biology. Now, we are not gorillas. Um, And so one of the things that happens in different cultures and different times of history is, and in different families, because they pick up on culture and history, um, is that the role of the male over time for humans has uh, multiplied. Men are still expected to be the protectors, but especially at the end of the 20th century and even today, there was then um, a tremendous pressure to demonstrate that men could be as sensitive and comforting, that fathers could, in fact, do what mothers do. Mm -hmm. And the data shows very clearly that in families, men can be as comforting, men can be as protecting. And so when we start to look at families today in terms of attachment, and we look at the clinical implications of attachment, we find that for many individuals, their fathers 
were the ones who were able to provide these basic attachment needs growing up when mom might not even have been quite as capable. Mm -hmm. And so fathers, I, I want to make sure we understand that fathers can be quote unquote motherly. Mm -hmm. And I hope that is not um, offensive to anybody who's listening. But, uh, if, it, if it is, they, they found the wrong podcast, most likely. Right. Well, it's about providing protection and comfort all at once. And fathers can do that. But when everything is going well in a family, Mm -hmm. The unique role of fathers is in play. Mm -hmm. And we have discovered in our research that if the family is in balance, and of course fathers and mothers can step in for one another in the comforting role and the protection role, but fathers' unique contribution to children's development is play not signing up for football practice or, or you know soccer practice necessarily that kind of play but especially with the young ones the ones that you can still throw up the, into the ceiling and almost the baby hits the ceiling and mama's going oh my god you can't do that and dad's saying oh everything's fine um so it's it's the play not that I, uh, you know, want all the dads to go home and throw their babies up toward the ceiling. But the point being that there's an intimacy, there is a, uh, a, a bond around exploration that fathers participate in and contribute to attachment security in children that is different than mothers. It's hard for most mothers to, to move into that role, and of course they can. Uh, mothers who are raising children on their own for one reason or another, or fathers who are raising children on their own for one reason or another. So it's important that the children get both. Mm -hmm. But as I said earlier, if we have the situation where the family system is balanced and working the way it can, um, fathers have that unique contribution, especially in early development and play. That's, I'm so glad. Um, you're talking about play and, you know, and when I think about, you know, my son is six, when I think about where we are sort of at our best, when we're really, um, vibing together, it is in those where it's sort of loosely organized. We figure out the rules. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a coach, so I'm, I, I think of myself, whether that's, that's right or, or wrong as being good at constraining the rules, constraining the complexity to something he can work it within. You have to. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. We call that in, in education, developmental psychology, we call that scaffolding. So you don't push a child too far, you know, beyond, and you help them get like little steps on scaffolds on a, on a ladder, for example. But in that, what's important for the attachment relationship, I mean, that's important for competence. Mm -hmm. And moms can participate in exploration and competence. But what's important about the father role is the effect of sharing that goes in that the eye contact, the, the physical um, contact that's involved, the enjoyment of being together. Um, it's not about the rules. It's not about the game you're playing. It's about the togetherness. And again, moms can participate in that way, but it tends to, especially with the little ones, that the moms still, no matter how equal you're trying to make your family, the moms still are engaged in a, a lot of the hands-on caregiving. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
and we know dads can bathe, they can read, they can, they can do, but you know, the tickling and the eye contact, it's just, and the, the physical contact for dads in, in a play relationship with young children is really important. And I'm proud to say that we, we have studied this. We're not just saying, oh, this is what we think dads can do. The empirical evidence shows that there are differences between the mother and the father relationship in terms of attachment. Mm-hmm. Um, coming back to COVID and, and the idea of, um, you know, we'll talk about attachment styles in a, in a moment, um, and like a period of high stress or, or trauma. And I would think that, uh, particularly from a nurturing perspective, um, if there are times where mom is overwhelmed or maybe chronically overwhelmed, that's where a more sort of resilient family will allow for sort of, um, more ready switching up of roles. Is that a fair way to describe it? I think my, my word for attachment security, which we haven't defined yet, is flexible hmm. within your culture. I mean, we have to be culturally minded. So within sort of modern Caucasian and then class works in there as well, where you are on the, on the income um, piece. So it doesn't necessarily have to be sort of, you know, Caucasian or white. But flexibility is the name of the game. Flexibility in many areas is the foundation development, developmental, that was a mouthful, pardon me, developmental and uh, mental health. Mm -hmm. And so when stress is high in the family, like with COVID, which is just amazingly hard to be raising children in in the the COVID, it's important for parents to be flexible, to be able to switch roles, or, or at least to be respectful. If we're going to take uh, our roles, if our, our roles are a little more rigid, which they are in many families, mm-hmm. at least to support the other parent in the role that that parent is in, even if though that parent is not switching roles, so to speak. Right. And... And stress, stress is really an important time for us to be able to do that as parents together. And so is, is our response to stress, is that a good sort of barometer for maybe for attachment style or an indicator? Like maybe we can talk about how you, how you think about this stuff. Okay. Let let me talk about attachment. First of all, um, the people who do developmental, there are two kinds of attachment. There's one that is about romantic partners, and that's not what I do, but it was developed to describe uh, sort of how partners work together. Uh, uh, Originally, it was based on sexual satisfaction. That's called attachment style. And then the work that we developmentalists do is called attachment patterns. Sometimes it's called status. And um, I like those words because when you start talking about style in psychology, you the implication is personality, and by the, we know that um, you know, there's a lot of personality research that says that by the time you're an adult, your personality is set, it can't change, you are who you are. And that's not true for attachment patterns. The patterns uh, tend to replicate themselves over time, and they even are passed on to the next generation because often our circumstances don't change that much. But when individuals need help, and this is the clinical work that we do, we can, we can change those patterns. So there are, um, let's see, let's get to the 
the basic patterns. We talk about four basic patterns in the field. And one pattern, if individuals have gone online or there are a lot of uh, books now that people can pick up to read about attachment. Um, some are better than others, um, but I'm not here to do a library critique. But secure is uh, what I like to call flexible. What that means is that we, um, for many individuals, had parents who were sensitive. They noticed when we had a need, they were right there and responded, gave us the comfort we needed. They didn't overdo it. The parent is always thinking a lot about what do we need to accomplish here, especially as kids go older. For little ones, it's baby's crying, pick the baby up, comfort the cry baby so that she's not crying any longer, and so that way the baby can go out and explore the world. But as we go through time, our parents, and then we as individuals, we become more um, conscious of what are our goals for this child? What is the environment like? How old is the child? What is our child supposed to be doing now? Your child is six. Your child is your, your son. Uh, son, right? Yes. Yes. Is in what we call the five to seven shift, which is a fabulous period of time. He's becoming more competent. He's competent in school. He's reaching out more independently with his friends. You're orchestrating all of that. And attachment is always about those questions. How do I support that? How do I um, keep my child on the developmental track that is going to make a good citizen in our in adulthood and adolescence? Mm -hmm. How do I buffer him from the distress of COVID or the distress of maybe chronic illness in our family or when my partner and I disagree? How do I buffer him from uh, things that may be upsetting to him? And so parenthood is always this fine line of, uh, you know, working, responding to the child and thinking ahead. Okay, we anticipate a lot of parent. And a secure parent is in a, a position based on an adult, based on often having had those same experiences as a child, they just roll into it as they move through middle childhood, as they move through adolescent, and they move through adulthood. Now, what I like about the name uh, pattern or status rather than style is that if one was not secure as a child, which many are not. In fact, a lot of the people who are interested in attachment didn't have those experiences that I've described as a child mm -hmm. for reasons that are not the parent's fault. Attachment is not a parent blaming um, theory. But, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. The magic question as we grow up is why were my parents the way they were mm -hmm. and how did it affect me? Mm -hmm. And individuals who are currently secure as adults, one, are the best able to provide security for their own children. That's empirically established. It's, it's an, almost a no-brainer, but of course in science you have to test everything. Mm -hmm. Um, but those individuals have been able to ask that question about why were my parents the way they were and how, how is it I came out the way I was and how do I get what I need to make that change? Because every parent that I've ever worked with wants to do the best by their children. 
And sometimes they just don't have the tools to do that. Mm-hmm. And that's where clinical psychologists come in. They help us get the tools that we need to do that. Um, with what we call attachment-informed therapy, there's no such thing as attachment therapy, but clinicians who build attachment into their work. So flexibility is the key. And the flexibility is about asking all those questions I, I talked about earlier and also understanding that um, attachment is a very important part of my life, but I need to have friends. That's part of my biology as well. I, I have a partner. My partner is perhaps not only my sexual partner, but my friend. So that's a really special relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I need to get out there and explore the world myself. And that's often done. And you were talking that maybe we'll talk about the, the match between jobs or vocations. Uh, the exploration of the world is partly a match of who we are as attached in our pattern. Mm-hmm. But being able to explore is another part of our biology. And developing competence is another part of biology. So the secure, flexible individual over the course of time juggles all of those things. There are always bumps. Nothing is ever perfect. But they are able to biologically and behaviorally and in relationships because they value relationships come back to what we call homeostasis. Mm-hmm. A balance. Okay, that's secure. Mm-hmm. And again, individuals who are not secure as children can, quote unquote, earn their security mm-hmm. with help as adolescents and adults. Those individuals who are secure have had the most fundamental experiences of basic protection. And when they're, they are frightened or being threatened, when, when everything is coming at you at once, they know how to get their attachment needs met and they have a physiological calm that is associated with that. Now, not everybody gets that. Mm. So then there are three kinds of insecurity. Two patterns that are insecure the goal is always to get that calm, figure out a way to do the best they can, but never completely are part of the homeostatic process. Okay. And they're, they're sort of flip sides of each other. One is that the message they got growing up, and this is where the, there's a saying called, I'm there for you. That is not the saying of a secure person. But it is the saying of a person whose parent has said, I want you to be more independent. We need more emotional distance in our relationship. Let's not talk about feelings here. Get out there and explore the world. And if you're really being threatened or if you're hurt, I am there for you. I will put the bandaid on your knee. I will take you to the hospital, you know, uh, if this is my job. So parenting is more about a job. And so what happens is they get uh, often physical protection, but they don't get the emotional intimacy, the emotional regulation protection. And so when they feel either consciously or unconsciously that they have a need for closeness, 
they have to manage it more on their own. So the message is independence and distance. But they know they will not be forsaken. Mm -hmm. So this group is called avoidant as a child, and this group is called detached as an adolescent uh, and an adult. They have to not make relationships so important because they're not satisfying. Okay. And so in partnering and, and finding, you know, where you're going to go next in your relationship path, um, you feel more comfortable with other people who, like independents, don't need a lot of emotional closeness. But that backfires when there is trauma or distress. When and, you need greater support. Yeah. And yeah. these are the individuals who report in our research that they are the most lonely because they can't reach out. Mm. but they can get things done okay but it's never um it's never quite done like with a secure individual and they may choose competence and exploration over relationships just relationships are not where it's at for me mm -hmm. okay? but leadership exploration competence i'm a good leader sure i can do the flip side of that is another form of insecurity, which is uh, called in uh, childhood ambivalent resistant and in adulthood preoccupied. And the message those children have gotten is different in the sense that those parents, uh, and each relationship we have with our each parent is different as a kid or growing up. You could have an avoidant relationship with one parent and an ambivalent relationship with another one. And the message that children are getting in the ambivalent relationship is emotions are really, really important, but don't be angry. Don't be angry. Mm -hmm. Actually, in the avoidant relationship, anger is not a topic at all. Anger is and, and shame. Shaming is just, no, we don't talk about these. You're not going to be angry. Let me flip back to avoidant. And um, I'm going to shame you, but don't you do shame. In the ambivalent resistant relationship, uh, the anger is sort of out there. Emotions are out there. Uh, the parents talk about wanting closeness and intimacy with their children. But the problem is that the children are not getting a clear message about how to do that, which is different than the secures. And the avoidant children are getting a clear message. We need to keep our distance. So that the messages coming from the parent are more confusing. Mm -hmm. And they, they, the experience of the child is that the parent often takes too long to figure out what it is that needs to happen or changes their mind midstream or has maybe has a rule and then feels such tremendous guilt that, you know, off to the ice cream scar we go because I'm feeling guilty as a parent. And the children are getting really, really inconsistent messages. Mm -hmm. And so what happens is that their attachment needs are met every once in a while, but they can't predict when that's going to happen. So they're ambivalent because they want to be close, but they know they don't get the closest they want. They're angry often. And so when they are close, they're just like, meh, you know, the babies are cranky and they say, no, but you, the last time you didn't do this. And this is where infant memory becomes mm. really important. And it, same thing happens as they grow up then. And so what these children do is they find indirect ways to say what they need, but they can't communicate it clearly. 
they they kind of kind of uh and then are you listening and then finally a child young child might be just screaming or really angry or throw a tantrum because they don't know how to communicate clearly and the avoided children can't mm -hmm. they're not allowed to except for when the parent wants them to communicate It doesn't matter what your your signals are, but it does matter what your behaviors are because the parents of avoidant children um, are really uptight about what we call behavior management. Are you acting right in the right situations? Mm. Okay. And for the ambivalent children, their their signals or communication, those behaviors are often really diffuse, obtuse, and the parents struggle to figure out what they are and the children have not learned to communicate clearly. Yeah, because there's no sort of consistent reinforcement for what works. There's no la exactly. real language development in terms of, of that communication. Exactly. And there's no emotional communication either. Both language, because as we get older, language becomes a big part of this, but the emotional communication, the facial expressions. Do we cry or not cry, especially as children? Okay. But those two insecure groups, um, do experience, not as consistently as secure, but they do experience felt protection. Because mm -hmm. their parents get it sometimes. Right. So the fourth group um, is a group where we find most of the developmental and infant mental health problems, mm -hmm. which is a group that um, they could have any of the other experiences that I've just described. But when push comes to shove, their view of themselves is, I'm not being protected. I'm on my own. My parent is turning away from me. I'm frightened. I'm helpless. Even if every once in a while you have either secure, avoidant, ambivalent interactions, the more general frame of how I feel about myself is my parents are not there. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't have, this isn't something that we're carrying in our left brain. This is not something that is necessarily conscious. But as we grow older, what the children tell us that they do become conscious of and, and they will become conscious of the fact that they're frightened and helpless later on, but they have to really control the world around them. Problems, mm -hmm. which is a group that um, they could have any of the other experiences that I've just described. But when push comes to shove, their view of themselves is, I'm not being protected. I'm on my own. My parent is turning away from me. I'm frightened, I'm helpless, even if every once in a while you have either secure, avoidant, ambivalent interactions, the more general frame of how I feel about myself is my parents are not there. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't have, this isn't something that we're carrying in our left brain. This is not something that is necessarily conscious. 
But as we grow older, what the children tell us that they do become conscious of, and, and they will become conscious of the fact that they're frightened and helpless later on, but they have to really control the world around them. For one reason or another, the parent was not able to protect those children. And that's their view of life. Like, okay, I've got to do it. So those are our four main groups. There's some nuances here that I think are above and beyond uh, what we're doing here today. Uh, what I've just described is what people would read about in books or on the internet. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I'm a parent, I'm listening to this and maybe thinking I recognize some, some shades of my, uh, my style, my pattern. Um, but okay. So what do, what do I do? How do I, how do I continue to think about this and work toward, um, I th I think everyone who's, who's here, who's listening to this, um, you know, cares a lot about how we're parenting, um, how we're providing, you know, and now in this language, secure attachments. So, um, how, how should we be thinking about this? Well, I think that first of all, we have to be aware and, and hopefully, uh, for those of you listening out there, if you're thinking that which Jeff, you just said, good for you. Because parenting is so, oh, the word important doesn't even address it. Parenting is so much a part of our biology that it is often, and this is why I did infant mental health for 22 years, it is often the entree to change. Wanting to do better by your children, knowing that that's not what you had, or, or not even knowing, feeling that you're just not doing the best you can for your child, okay, is often the way we open doors for change. It's often hard for adults to recognize in themselves that there are troubles and bumps here that are, well, troubles that are more than just bumps, that these are not going to go away. Mm -hmm. um, but it's often hard for us, especially if we're in that avoidant group, to say, I need help. Mm -hmm. So I love the way that you ask this question because when we look at ourselves as parents, we can often say, you know what? I want to do the best I can. And I know that Something's troubling me and I'm, I'm not doing this. And how can we tell um, we don't have the, the times of intimacy and joy with our children? Uh, you know, maybe there's more conflict with our partner about how to, how to raise our children. I mean, there are these issues that come up in our family. So what do we do? Well, um, there, there are... So individuals, for those of you who are avoidant or kind of in the detached sign, you like to read things, <laughs> books, and you like to do exercises, and you know you like to use your left brain, and I'm respectful of that. Um, and so there, there's a book by Dan Siegel, for example, called Parenting, I think it's called Parenting Inside Out. Sounds familiar, yeah. And um, he has some really excellent exercises that you can do that can help get you in touch with who you are. I, I mention that because I know a lot of people like to, to read 
not everything that you read is good, which is why I usually don't recommend books to um, my clients. I think to find a, a psychologist, and there's no shame, there's no stigma in seeking clinical help. A counselor, a psychologist who uses attachment in their practice, who can, first of all, do an assessment to tell you where you are on this continuum of patterns that I just talked about. Secure people seek help too. They mm. seek mental health help, and I, we don't even want to call it necessarily has to be mental health help. But if there has been trauma in your family, regardless of which group you're in, it's really hard to do that work on your own because you need to have a private space to be able to talk about or even get in touch with or name what it what these bumps are. And that often takes a, still, a skilled clinician to help you engage in that conversation. Uh, I'm a fan of assessment. I like to work and I do a lot of consultation with clinicians who use assessment, lots of kinds of assessments, but also an, an attachment assessment that shows you where you are on that continuum. Because everybody's different even though we have these groups that I just described. So how we get help, there's also a, a program, uh, and I know that there are people in your communities, it's called the Circle of Security Parenting Classes, mm -hmm. and they are hands-on. Um, this is who we are, this is how we parent, this is how attachment is related to it, they work a little bit with who we were as kids. They work more about who we are now as parents. But it's called the Circle of Security, and you can all uh, look the Circle of Security up on the Internet. There's a lovely picture about um, of a child and a parent, and the parent has the hands out, and the child goes off and explores. And then the child comes back and the parent is always there to catch, to send the child out, to catch the child when the child comes back, not to push, but to nudge or to catch. And I love the Circle Security Parenting Programs. Uh, you are in groups with other parents. And this is the most attachment and parenting friendly intervention that I know of. No parent blaming, no shaming. One shouldn't feel ashamed to reach out for help. Uh, and so I would suggest finding professionals in your community. Uh, you can get on the internet that either do informed attachment, not attachment therapy. That's pseudoscience. That's scary. Okay. But informed by attachment in whatever other ways that they do their clinical work and then the circle of security parenting. Wonderful. Um, and then when we look at relationships or we look at maybe your work environment, what signals might you look for to say, okay, this is, um, this is working in the right direction for me, you know, with respect to my attachment needs, or maybe this is a big sort of blurring clacks on saying, this is not, this is not great for my, my well -being. I think that attachment is a stress model. Everything that we talk about at the physiological level is about stress. And of course, in the last 50 or 60 years, we've lost so much about stress and how uh, damaging it can be. Mm -hmm. 
I would suggest that if your workplace is the kind of place that uh, can, where you can express your stress, where someone can engage in an adult conversation with you, maybe your managers, your bosses. CEOs are not known for this. Uh, many of them are in that fourth group that have to control everything. Many of your bosses are leaders, not because they are flexible leaders, but because they have to control everything. So your, your answer is actually not very uh, straightforward because we bring attachment with us in our relationships and we bring it with us in, in the workplace. But we need to, in our workplace, be able to find a place where we can communicate what we need without reason, without being squashed. Mm. But we also need in our workplace to be able to know who we are and what we can manage. Okay. And so we have lots of adages and sayings about this. Take time for yourself. I mean, they're good things. But if you are doing those things and you're still under a lot of stress, you're not able to sleep at night, you're eating too much, you're not eating enough, you're, um, you want to have a little bit uh, that second or third drink, for example, you know, how much wine or alcohol, drugs, how is that interfacing? Then probably your workplace is, is not a good place for you right now. And then you have the way to, to entertain that, not, not in a, um, you know, a way, but you have to think about why. Kind of the question that I was suggesting earlier, why were my parents the way they were and how I'm, how am I because of that? What is my workplace? Why is my workplace the way it is? Mm -hmm. And who am I? Because we bring that stress home with our, to our partners and our children. And if, in fact, the answers to those questions are, I have no control over this, then I might want to get a different place to work or a different role within that uh, system. Some people would rather be more independent it fits with their, um, I have a lot of tech in my family, independent, working on their own, uh, more in the tech, not having an interface with the public. You know, if you're in sales and that's not your cup of tea, you'd rather be working on your own. Maybe there's a place in your workplace where you can shift. Maybe sales is not for you. Maybe working on your own is making you miserable that you need more human contact. That happened for my own daughter. She knew she wasn't going to be a bench scientist because she couldn't, she didn't get to see anybody. Mm. You know, working with DNA was not her cup of tea in a Petri dish and a you know, centrifuge. So now she's in worldwide marketing in biotechnology. She still uses her, her technology. So know who you are, but know what relationships you want to work in and what, whatever you do, it doesn't matter. Even if you're working in a more individually based, you have to be able to, to interface with people. And if those people are not willing to see who you are for who you are, and that is becoming uncomfortable for you, then it's time to make a change. Um, and a lot of people, I think the average now, is that people might even have two, three, two to three actual career changes. Now, I want to acknowledge too that this is easier said than done because in our jobs, we have an income, we have a place, 
uh, are your your listeners are parents. They have responsibilities. They have bills to pay, and it's not so easy as it is, for example, when you're 20 or 21, uh, to, to just make a change. Mm-hmm. Uh, in many families, there are stigmas against that. There's shame. So you have to know who you are. I think attachment helps you and to know what kinds of changes you can make, what changes are not logistically possible right now, maybe because of where your family is at. But try to figure out how to get those resources that will help you do the job that you want to do. Uh, Some people are in jobs they don't want to do, but they do the things they do want to do as more avocations. Mm. Things that, you know, uh, I don't want to say hobbies, but necessarily not where your income and your your professional identity is not dependent on it, but it's still a place where you can express yourself. Mm -hmm. And I just, again, want to acknowledge how difficult it is when you're raising a family to get to do all those things. I'm speaking to all of you as an old person. You will. Just hang in there, okay? My children are your age. We all survived. And we are all now to be able, in this part in my life, to be more flexible. Um, sometimes you don't have that, that uh, flexibility to be that way. But knowing who you are, what your strengths are, where your weaknesses are, and how to get help are really important. A hundred percent. You know, before we go, I would love to ask you one more thing. As a ADHD dad, I am curious as to whether you've seen any patterns or trends worth noting um, in the relationship between men with ADHD and attachment styles. Well, I'll tell you that ADHD is the most popular referral uh, problem in North America right now. And I believe that's true in like for my colleagues in Europe as well. But I do, I run many consultation groups uh, on attachment and the assessment that I do, the adult attachment protective picture system. And um, in, in all due respect, it is a diagnosis that is often a quick fix. Mm-hmm. And a doctor or ADHD is uh, most frequently identified in the classroom with young children because the teachers are the ones who have the access to uh, the attentional problems. And they'll say to a parent, you know, get your child tested for ADHD. Yeah. So ADHD has a long history that I won't go into here, but we still don't know what it is. Bottom line is we still don't know what it is. There are some really good tests now for ADHD, and if someone uh, has been referred for ADHD, whether adult or child, I highly recommend you find someone who is a specialist uh, in that area. But often what my colleagues are telling me is that their client whether it be child, adolescent, adult, was referred to ADHD, and they're just not seeing it Mm. on the assessments. And what I would like to tell your listeners, and I'll tell you, is that individuals who have not grieved attachment trauma show the signs of ADHD. 
Can we can we unpack that a bit? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> I'll unpack that. Um, but ADHD is a limbic system, prefrontal cortex, attentional memory package. Which which is to say, there's not there's not a spot in the brain. We have we have patterns. All of those parts. Yeah. And brainstem, brainstem, which is. Uh, where our reflexes are, brainstem, which is when we are frightened, we react. And it we don't even think about it, our brainstem. So all of that is part of who we are as an attentional being. Okay? Paying attention to our our surrounds, our environment, our our work, the letters on the page, uh, you know, for dyslexia. So there there ADHD is a real phenomenon. But for many people, the attentional processes that would get them referred to get tested for ADHD are the product of not being protected from attachment trauma. Because the fear that they hold, the sense of having to be hypervigilant about their environment and not pay attention to something else because what's happening right now may be dangerous and I need to really concentrate on this, but I can't get a sense of the bigger picture, uh, are all also interferences with our attentional selves, so to speak. So I would always recommend that if, in fact, the ADHD, when it is being assessed, using these excellent tools that we have, is coming. the assessments are coming out puzzling that we also test for un, unresolved, or not, not that group that I was talking about, but attachment trauma that is still lingering. Mm-hmm. And attachment trauma, most people think is either you lost somebody through death, which is an attachment trauma, or that maltreatment may be happening in the family, that is an attachment trauma. But there are so many other ways, sadly, I maybe, maybe it's good that we've identified these as professionals, but there's so many other ways that children can feel failed protection. Mm-hmm. Uh, if parents have a, a psychiatric disorder, if parents are uh, away from home for long periods of time, um, uh, parents who become enraged for no reason, not that they're abusing a child, but, you know, throwing and breaking things and you can't predict when that's going to happen. Uh, parents who are overwhelmed themselves and simply say, you're on your own. I, I have to turn away. You have to take care of yourself. And there are a lot of ways in which parents have to do that. As Again, we're not blaming parents. So there are many different ways in which this trauma can uh, kind of fester over the course of childhood on into middle childhood where this is often diagnosed, adolescence. Um, one of the biggest problems that we see, and there's a study about this in adolescence, is when attachment is interfe- when their you know attachment trauma is interfering, um, we can't think abstractly. Mm-hmm. We can't hold in short-term memory also enough pieces to put the puzzle together. So these are all problems that are related to ADHD and. Um, it's complicated, and I certainly don't want to dismiss the diagnosis, but most people don't know what I'm describing. And so they will diagnose children and adults, medicate, and maybe that's too 
quick a fix. It's tough to be a teacher. You've got too many kids in the classroom. You're tired. You're expected to do too much. You're expected to take care of parenting at home for in many communities. Mm-hmm. But it's also the case that teachers are not trained this way. They are tr- the way that I'm speaking. They are trained to be able to identify problems, but then they will send children out for other testing. So they do the best they can. They really do the best they can, but they are not being trained. They are not necessarily, they're trained to educate, but they're not trained in mental health and developmental problems. And usually what most people do is they end up at the pediatrician. Well, guess who is less trained? And so we can't criticize them, but they don't know. And therefore, that's why developmental psychologists are really good people to have on your team. Mm. That they are being trained to think about uh, these problems developmentally. And um, ADHD is complex, but it is more likely if you are a boy all you dads out there, do you have a boy? Are you perhaps? Uh, one of my colleagues in infant mental health, Dr. Judith Solomon, who I've done a lot of work with, said, because uh, she and I are in the same age group, we're all in our 70s now, there's no place for boys to be boys, even in preschool. Boys have higher energy levels. Mm-hmm. Boys have to move around. Boys have to tap. Boys have to kick their legs. They even statistically more so than girls. They're, you know, we know that uh, girls and boys are similar in many ways. But if you look statistically, it's the boys who are going to be identified earlier and more often as having ADHD. Mm-hmm. And then once you get that diagnosis, it follows through with you. If the diagnosis is made well, there are so many. Um, programs and ways to intervene that you have rights to in your schools. And it's often the case, too, that the schools are, and this goes for what um, we used to call being on the spectrum. Uh, we've changed how we talk about autism now. There are different levels. But if any of you uh, parents out there, any of you dads out there, have a child who has developmental uh not, I don't want to use the word disabilities, but are, are not purely typically developmentally uh, typical, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Your schools uh, entitle you, and I'm pretty sure it's the same in Canada and the United States. The schools have resources, and sometimes you just have to push. And I encourage you to push. I encourage you to push kindly and professionally but get all the resources you're entitled to while your children are little because these conditions can be remedied enough so that by the time the children are adolescents and adults, they're not suffering as much. And if attachment trauma is involved, then let's get to the heart of that as well. Some tremendous wisdom here. If this interview ran a little long, it's because it all felt pretty important to me. What I was most challenged by was that last piece on ADHD and how ADHD symptoms might actually point you in a different direction. I recorded this quite a while ago, before my hiatus. And in the meantime, I've just been sitting with the idea, you know, letting it marinate. What if a lot of ADHD isn't actually ADHD? Well, what if it isn't? What if it is a good general descriptor? What if it is sort of a all-purpose catch-all? 
I think that's useful if it brings you to the party. The real question is what you do once you've arrived. So I like that this can very much become a more personal thing that goes beyond what the confines of ADHD might be because sometimes it's freeing, right? Um, a title or a term like this might be freeing when it helps you orient toward the world or organize by your strengths or build support where you need support. However, it's also kind of reductive to conflate a person with a diagnosis. So to paraphrase Bruce Lee, take what is useful, reject what isn't, and continue to push for love and understanding and meaning. What else are you going to do with your life anyway, right? Remember, uh, March 5th is coming up soon. We would love to see you at the live Dad Strength event in Toronto, uh, noon to 2. That's on a Sunday. Email me, Jeff, G-E-O-F-F at dadstrength.com. Thank you for hanging out with us today. Special thanks to my guest, Dr. Carol George. Shout out to the Unlearning Network. Our title music is by Daniel Ross. Additional music by Mike Ford. May all your attachments be safe and secure. We'll see you soon.